So you wanna watch a movie, but you don't know which. Choosing the one can be a bitch. But Jared and Drew have perfected the art. So sit back, relax, and trust the dark. It's dark for movie night. What's going on, everyone? I'm Drew. And I'm Jared. And welcome to Dartboard Movie Night, the podcast where we put 20 movies on a board, throw a dart at it, and let the fates decide. This week, we are going back to the 1950s and covering what many consider to be among the greatest, if not the greatest film of all time. Tonight, we're covering Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo, starring Jimmy Stewart and Kim Novak. How you doing, Jared? Doing good, man. Doing good. How are you? Good, good, good. Uh, good how do you, so? How do you feel about that uh, that designation? I mean, we'll get to to in a little bit here, but uh, does that shock you at all to hear that? Um, it shocks me a little. I mean, we we there are these movies in the ethos that we just know critics and directors that we love just adore these films, and they tend to have a little bit of baggage to them when they get this sort of like iconic status of like you know like a citizen kane or whatever um because then you go into it with this thought of like is it though you know which i was like <laughs> tarrying with me the whole time yeah it's um, kind of unfortunate i feel like that it gets that designation because uh, i think it it uh like you said it just it adds this baggage to it that i kind of wish i watched the movie without to some extent yeah. but we'll get to that in a little bit uh first yeah. i want to do a little board review here jared we're on my fourth movie in a row right now dude you have been scorching matching scorching it matching my longest streak of the show so far Oh, I mean, it's led to some interesting films, so I can't complain that much. But I am feeling a little browbeaten by the whole thing. Like, yeah. I'm hoping to turn it around soon. Well, we'll or see. even a bullseye. Give me a bullseye. Something. <laughs> Just something to, 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 you know, get my, my momentum stopped somewhere. Dude, my left-hand throw has just been failing me. It has led to a bunch of OGs, though, which you know excites me. Uh, so I might keep it rolling, but we'll see. We'll see what I feel like when it comes to throwing the dart. We'll see, but uh, let's do a little review of what we got on the board currently so people know where uh, we're getting this one from. Love so uh, I'll run through the board here, starting with one, ending with 20. At number one, You Can Count On Me. Number two, Ex Machina. Number three, The Right Stuff. Number four, The Big Sleep. Number five, Operation Condor. Number six, The Sixth Sense. Number seven, Amadeus. Number eight, The Fifth Element. Number nine, Days of Heaven. Number 10, Big Daddy. Number 11 is tonight's episode, Vertigo. Number 12, The Straight Story. Number 13, Thunderbolt and Lightfoot. Number 14, Last Night in Soho. Number 15, The Friends of Eddie Coyle. Number 16, Modern Romance. Number 17, The Blair Witch Project. Number 18, Waking Life. Number 19, Face Off. And number 20, Kung Fu Hustle. Hell yeah, dude. That's a good board. That's just a good board. Aren't you so happy that we, we made the change of not just sticking to even and odd numbers? I'm yes. so glad that we did that. It, that was that was too stodgy. We needed to open Way it up stodgy. and make it uh, a little more random. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's awesome. It's awesome. No, and I like it too. I like it too because you know, I am on a four movie streak, but I've only put up two movies in that time. So you're going to even out, you know, just statistically over time. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It it was just such a it was such a good move. Man, such a good just move. Jerk yourself off a little more over there. Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> it made a mediocre show slightly better. <laughs> <laughs> mediocre is generous. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but no, I, I yeah, I, I think uh, that was the right way to go for sure. And uh, mm-hmm. I, I like where the board sits right now. I don't know. Is there anything on there right now that jumps out at you as uh, stuff you're hoping we hit next for next week at the end of this episode? I mean, I'm excited about Operation Condor, man. Like, I'd love to see a Jackie Chan movie. I've never seen that one. Neither of us have. 
that would be, I think, a fun kind of twist in the show. But all of them, like Fifth Element, I'd love to revisit. I really adore that flick. Just a lot of, lot of good choices. Are there any that you're not excited about? <laughs> Maybe we should keep that unsaid. But I, don't, I don't think so. I mean, I think I'm excited about all of them. I guess if I had to pick one that I'm the least excited for, it would be maybe Ex Machina. Not because I don't mm-hmm. like that movie. I, I enjoyed it when I saw it. But um, it's not one that I'm like rip-roaring to have a conversation about. Um, right, right, right. But, you know, good movie, so I'm I'm down to, to re-watch it. Um, yeah. I don't know. Anything on there that you're like, nah, don't want to get to that? I honestly don't think so. Um, I do think Amadeus is just going to be a movie movie, It's a, which could be kind of fun. We haven't had one like that since Aaron Brockovich, but I don't think it's going to, like, sweep us off our feet, really. Who knows, um, man? So, it's Milos we'll, Foreman. Yeah. I love Milos Foreman. We'll just, we'll just, there's only one way to find out. We got to hit it. I mean, I thought you were going to say you can count on me because you want to, uh, you know, keep saying sorry to Mark uh, for, for taking that away from him. <laughs> yeah. I love that we keep saying that. Probably no one has any idea why. But yeah, I would like to, I actually think I'd like to stop saying sorry, Mark, a little bit. It was the one time we, it was the one time we defied the dart. And, and I hope only time. I think we got to trust the dart. Yeah. Yeah, well, apologies to Mark Ruffalo. Um, yeah. He gets a shout out at the end of every episode if anyone was yeah. wondering why we were doing really that. Really hurt his feelings, too. You know? Yeah, he, it's because he loves we hit the show. That movie and we chose <laughs> and not to we, do it. And we just insulted him. We, but. I should say, more you, but I, yeah, I went me, along with me. it. I went along that's with fair. it. That's fair. So you got a hot streak and an insult. That's nice. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, Jared, you want to give us a little streaming check there and uh, tell us where we can find Vertigo to watch? Yeah, definitely. It's available to rent pretty much anywhere. So for like three, four bucks, you can check it out on Amazon, Hulu, Apple, places like that. And for a movie that has this sort of legacy that this one does, I would say it's really worth it. Like you kind of got to put eyes on this movie if you haven't before. As just a fan of film, you can really see how impactful it is. So I think it's worth it. You know, a couple of bucks, check it out. You know, it's, it's a, it, that's the best way to get to it, I think. Yeah. See if you think that this is one of the greatest movies of all time. Got the traditional question for you, Drew, because this is a Drew Clark pick. How did this get on the board? How did Vertigo arrive to us? Well, as we've mentioned a couple of times already on this episode, um, this movie in 2012, uh, well, I'll I'll back up. The Sight and Sound is a a magazine that does a uh, top movies of all time list that they put out every decade, and they only update it once a decade. Um, and there's like a set body of people who are voting on this. I think it's like filmmakers and critics, you know, kind of mixed together. Um, mm-hmm. But for the longest time, Citizen Kane was listed as the top film. Uh, I want to say from like 1962 onwards, it, it was the, the number one film. Mm. And Vertigo was nowhere on the list for, I, I want to say like 40 or 30, 30 years from the time mm. that it came out to, uh, you know, when it actually started appearing on that sight and sound poll. But in, that's, that's incredible. incredible. Yeah. So it only appeared, I think, for the first time in either, I want to say it was 92 was the first year that it made it on. But it happens uh, on the twos. So, you know, 82, mm-hmm. 92, 2002, 2012. Um, and in 2012, Vertigo ascended to the top spot. <sighs> Which it was it was, was interesting, and it and it coincided uh, with the voting body opening up to a lot 
uh, more diverse voting body, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. So I wonder how much that influenced that. But um, and when I say diverse, I mean you know uh, in terms of sexual orientation, uh, gender, uh, you know, race, all of that, um, mm-hmm. socioeconomic status, even. Um, so they you know they got a much wider spread of people and this movie took the top spot so Mm. when that happened i mean it was like you know that was right at the peak of when i was following film blogs and you know obsessing over the making of movies and all this kind of stuff and i was just like whoa okay so vertigo just like leapt to the front of my brain and for whatever reason it's just one i've never gotten to i've watched a bunch of other hitchcock i love psycho i love uh, rear window I owned for a long time and, and have watched, uh, you know, a bunch of times. I love that movie. Um, I'm a big fan of North by Northwest. Mm. So yeah, I, you know, I've, I've always had it on my radar and just never got around to it. So the board was the perfect mm. opportunity to, uh, check this one off. No, it's a perfect, it's a perfect candidate. And you might not know this, but I wanted to ask, is it clear how many positions it leaped between O two and twenty twelve? Can we see like where it was in O two or no? So in two thousand two, Vertigo had already gotten to the number two spot. Mm. Um, so it, it was already hovering right there. Gotcha, gotcha. But uh, and it, it didn't come out of nowhere. But it mm-hmm. is interesting that it took that spot because I mean, you know, even today, I think most people talk about Citizen Kane as like that. Is, that is like where cinema was you know, reached the peak of what you can do with the form. Mm. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's true. Like vertigo. So heel nipped for a while, but I find it so fascinating. I didn't know this until you said it, that it wasn't even on the list until what did you say? 92. I want to say so yeah, kinda, 92. Yeah. Something like that. But it's just, it's so cool that it just kind of slumbered for this time and went kind of unrecognized and then reemerged and has gotten all this, you know, adulation and stuff. I, I do love, whether I agree with it or not, I do love when that happens to a film. So I've actually fl- found, I found the top 10 lists uh, for, from 1952 on, which is when they started mm-hmm. doing it. Um, and C- Citizen Kane from 1962 on was the number one. Uh, 52, mm-hmm. it was Bicycle Thieves um, mm-hmm. before that. And then... Uh, Fascinating. That's one I've considered putting on the board, by the way, Bicycle yeah. Thieves. Yeah. I, 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 one day it'll get up there. Interestingly, Bicycle Thieves like completely leaves the list start, starting mm. in 1972 in terms of the top 10, because uh, that's right, all right, I'm right. looking at here. But uh, it, the first appearance of Vertigo was in 1982 at number nine. Mm-hmm. And then uh, it went from there to number, uh, number four in 92 and number two in 2002. So it was creeping up. Mm. So something about it just seems to be hitting people like like stronger as the years go by. And like you said too that the the people who were voting in it changed a lot as well. So yeah, I I've like just a great choice for our show, for the board, and I love the reasons for putting it on. It's classic dartboard movie reasons of like this movie that has been on your radar for a long time. You like the director but you just haven't gotten to it. It's a great reason to get into it. Absolutely. Um what's your background with Vertigo and Hitchcock in general? So Hitchcock is one of those Mount Rushmore types, you know, very inventive, uh, important filmmaker. I haven't seen a ton of his films. I also have seen Rear Window. That was actually fairly recently. I saw that for the first time, maybe three years ago, something like that. Hmm. And I saw in high school, 39 Steps, 
I took a class about crime and mystery, and they, we watched that film, which is really early Hitchcock. Uh, and I liked it. It was pretty cool, I thought. And North by Northwest is another of his that I've seen. It's one of my roommate Bridget's favorite movies. Um, really, really enjoyed that too. Really loved how I picked up on how much the Big Lebowski was taking from North by Northwest in terms of this really confusing, intentionally confusing scenario that you just throw this character in. Mm -hmm. And and there's a lot of direct homages too, outside of just the generalness. So that's a movie I really dug. And then there's The Shamers. I've never seen Psycho and I've never seen The Birds, which I would argue... And of course, Vertigo, tonight's movie until we, until we got to it. I would argue Psycho and the Birds are among his most famous. That and I would say maybe Rear Window too. Um, yeah, the so Birds Shamers, is, not, is not like thought of as a respected film the same way as some of those others are. Uh, it's kind of one of his more schlocky ones. Yeah, but, but um, made a big impact culturally. Certainly. Like people, yeah. like it's considered like not a metaphor or anything, but like people, people still talk about that movie today as being kind of this ridiculous horror film but it is beloved as well well yeah and i think it 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 was a predecessor to the kind of b-level horror that uh became you know a staple in Mm -hmm. the 70s and 80s so Mm -hmm. um yeah it makes it it, it's it's definitely like an origin of a lot of horror from that Mm -hmm. vaguely familiar with hitchcock then but really not at a deep level like Again, three three films before this, I had seen three of his, sure. and I've always wanted to 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 dig deeper into him because I know he is so revered by the filmmakers that we love. Like I remember even hearing uh, Paul Thomas Anderson in an interview say like he wanted to try to do it like Hitchcock, and then he immediately was like, "But that's one of those names you should just like never say." Like like you know, it's like who do you think you are? You're gonna do it like Hitchcock, you know? So uh, <laughs> so yeah, I know he is just is just really important in this art that we love. And I'm excited to talk about this movie and in the future, see more of his stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And we'll get into this more kind of talking about Hitchcock specifically, but I think um, what's really interesting to consider is the fact that at the time Hitchcock was looked at as kind of this um, uh, populist filmmaker who was making, Mm. you know, your, your blockbusters at the movie theaters. Like he was, he was basically like a Marvel director would be today um, Mm -hmm. in terms of how he was viewed by the culture as just kind of like, Oh yeah, they're just like, you know, this is just fun fluff that gets thrown Mm -hmm. into the theaters. But like, over time, uh, you know, the, the critical reevaluation of his work has gained this status of like one of the, the all time greats. And for good reason, like all of, and, and I think that speaks to why Vertigo was maybe lagging behind in terms of, you know, reaching the, the respect levels of some of those other films is, you know, I think it, it took people getting some removal from that and seeing the way that blockbuster film evolved over time, um, to, to really appreciate what he was doing. Almost like a Spielberg. Like, Absolutely. You know, like, I think of Spielberg, particularly in the 80s, you know, he was making these movies that were absolute blockbusters, 70s with Jaws, you know, E.T., Indiana Jones. They were considered, I think at the time in a lot of ways, just like, oh, really good popcorn movies. And they do have that element to them, but they're also really amazing films. I mean, we've talked about E.T. on this very show, like, and he's a director that is now viewed properly he's like a genius he, he tells amazing great stories but i think at the time maybe it was viewed at sort of a popcorn level and as elevated so it sounds like hitchcock kind of had a similar similar direction yeah no i think i think that's a really fair comparison i think what's interesting to contrast between those two though is 
what their reactions were to getting that as their like you know what they were known for because yeah, like you know Hitchcock Hitchcock basically just made his movies always like he just this was what he did. He didn't really divert from it. Didn't really give a shit that, you know, if people were saying, ah, oh, that's just populist fluff, like he didn't care. Mm-hmm. Whereas Spielberg kind of took that on the chin and, you know, went from that to do like, you know, the color purple and Schindler's list and things mm-hmm. like that to like, be like, no, 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 I can do the prestige drama thing too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. you know, even though I'm making like incredible like family films and stuff, I've got this other speed to me as well. Mm-hmm. Hitchcock never seemed to have that impulse, which is really interesting. Yeah, like I wonder if Hitchcock ever tried a comedy or anything, you know. I don't know. He maybe he did, but I mean, the dude yeah. literally made I think 54 films. Like he has 54 Ridiculous. feature film credits as a director. Yeah. Yeah, it's like before we started rolling, I was like, "Oh, let me pull up Hitchcock just so I'd know for sure all the ones I've seen." And I was scrolling for like a day. I was taking a ride on the scroll bus, as they say. I was like, "Holy hell. He made so many fucking movies." It's insane. It's really, really nuts. Well, to get back, though, to the the sight and sound poll, how do you mm-hmm. feel about this movie being looked at as one of the best of all time? And do you agree with that designation? I do not agree. Okay. I do not agree with that designation. If we're diving into sort of our, our reactions, I'll say that I like this movie. There are parts of it I really, really loved. There are other parts that that annoyed me and frustrated me. And... To the point of us like, hey, me personally, I much prefer Citizen Kane to this film. And I, I again, I'm not. Uh, this is not going to be an episode where I'm bashing Vertigo. I, I, I liked the vast majority of it. Ultimately, any ranking is subjective as well. Yeah, so, and, like, who fucking cares? Yeah, what we should. Yeah, we should get that. <laughs> we should be very clear. Like, that yeah. does not matter at all. Yeah, one of these <laughs> fucking people know no more than us in some ways. Um, but yeah, I, I, I was kind of scratching my head at how it got there on the list. I'm like. If someone told me it was in the five hundred top five hundred or something, I'd be like, yeah, sure, yeah, yeah, I could see it living in there somewhere in the fours, the three hundreds, <laughs> whatever. But like, I, I did not even view it to be like a masterpiece. Like, I, I only saw a Rear Window once, but I prefer that film to this. I agree. Just within within Hitchcock's canon. Um, so I do not agree with its designation. We'll get to the the nuisances and problems I had with it, and we'll also, of course, get to the stuff I really liked as well. But no, did not, did not agree with the designation. How where are you at on that? No, I, I, it's interesting. I had the, I had a very similar reaction to you on first viewing. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, I think what this movie is doing and what makes it, um, really, really great. And I, and I want to be clear. I agree with you. I, th- I prefer Rear Window. I prefer Psycho. Um, like I think, I think he has better films. Do you but, prefer Citizen Kane? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, if we're, if we're talking about that list, yeah, I, d- I don't understand why this is in front of Citizen Kane. But I will say on second viewing, I got a lot more appreciation for what this movie was doing. Um, mm. I think this is kind of the magic of Hitchcock, and it's why it's taken so much time for his films to be reevaluated and, and elevated to the status maybe they, they deserve. And it, it's the fact that Hitchcock is very very subtle with the artistry behind what he's doing the way that this movie is constructed and the way that its themes and and what it's got on its mind is is all mirrored in the way that the the film is shot and constructed i think that stuff is fascinating to think about Hmm. but you know i i i think at the end of the day watching this movie 
as just a a pure thriller. It's just a really good thriller. You know, it mm-hmm. it doesn't it doesn't blow my mind in terms of like what it's about, but mm-hmm. what's going on behind everything on the surface is is very interesting to me. So I mm-hmm. I do think it's a great film, but I do not understand the the just absolute you know unabashed love that people have for it uh, seemingly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did you have did you have some issues to it, which we'll get to when we get to those kind of sections? But like, you know, or was it overall just kind of like, yeah, really good. Nothing. But but yeah, what are they talking about? <laughs> I, I think I think the movie does meander a little bit for the first hour. I think it, it, there's there's a lot that I, I was just like, can we can we get on with it? Can we get mm-hmm. to, to something here? And mm-hmm. and look, I mean, it's doing that methodically for a reason, so that it can set up a lot of the cyclicality of it, which you know I respect. But it doesn't make for a particularly entertaining viewing, as opposed mm-hmm. to like Rear Window, which to me is like riveting throughout. Yeah. yeah. Um. So I I think yeah I do have some some quibbles with it, and and I'm curious to hear yours because it sounds like maybe you have bigger ones. I think for me. It's not that I have particular problems with the movie, and it's it's just that it underwhelms me in terms of I think you know I I I do think a lot of it is the baggage bringing it into it, you know, mm. like I I think I I was having trouble getting out of my head of like why is this movie so so loved what what yeah. is going on here like and and I think that maybe got in the way a little bit of of me fully enjoying it. Yeah, that that's that's a that's a cool thing to say because. Even though I think you mentioned this when it was hit last week, I had forgotten by the time I watched the movie that this was had leapt up to number one and all that stuff. And so I didn't have that baggage. And I was just watching. It's like, oh, this is a Hitchcock movie. I see uh, that it's highly respected according to like Rotten Tomatoes or whatever. It's like, okay, it's, you know, it's, it's one that's highly regarded. It's a Hitchcock. It's probably a classic. But I didn't know about, I had forgotten about the number one thing. So... I had less baggage in that way and I still had really similar problems as, as you did. So, um, so yeah. And maybe even like kind of more so. So, yeah. So we'll, it, we'll it doesn't sound that. like it's unique to that scenario. It's, it's, I don't just, think so. Yeah. But yeah. you know, then again, I looked on my, you know, letterbox and pretty much everyone I follow gave this movie at least four and a half, if not five stars. Yeah. It's just, it's so, you know, we talk about a lot. There's just so I kind of feel like I'm missing the boat or something. I don't know. Yeah. You had the same thing with Repo Man. You were like, what's wrong with me? I just don't like this. Uh, but yeah, we all have those. We all have those, like those artists, whether they're musicians or films or filmmakers that everyone else seems to love. And you're just out in the rain. Like, I don't know whatever, I don't know what the rest of the world is thinking about this. <laughs> yeah. And this doesn't really fall into that category for me. It's not that no, extreme, no, it's not but, that. but, but yeah, it is kind of like, I didn't really see it. I thought it was dope, but like it's a really ever. good movie. Yeah. Best ever? I don't think so. <laughs> I mean, well, I I do want to get into some of the specifics in a little bit here mm-hmm. uh, cuz I, I there is some like really inventive shit in this movie mm-hmm. which I I definitely want to talk about, but mm-hmm. um let's talk about Hitchcock a little bit just in terms of like the where this sits in in his, you know, whole this massive massive filmography. filmography. <laughs> I wonder if there's any director who's made as many films. There probably are, but like that is insane. He's got to be the most prolific major, you know, major Hollywood filmmaker of all time, right? Yeah. Well, think of it this way. Like you said 58, something like that. A lot of people don't get 58 years as an adult on this planet. It's 54 like, I, technically, but yeah, 54. it's still crazy. That's, that is wild. 
that is a that is a wild amount of output. It's insane. I mean, the guy. So he, you know, was there from the earliest days of motion pictures. Like he started working in film in at, I think it was 1919 was the first year he was active. Mm-hmm. Um, the first film that he directed in terms of like you know credited as the main director. There's he has a couple of things before it. One that literally says unfinished uh, in parentheses <laughs> next to it on his IMDb, which is I'm I'm curious to see what that is. But uh, the Pleasure Garden in 1925 is his first directing credit. Mm-hmm. So he would have been let's see he would have been 26 years old when he made that. Now you tend to know film history especially around that time, better than I do. Do you know if sound had come out yet or was that a silent film? I don't, I'm not sure. The first feature film that uh, had sound was The Jazz Singer, and mm-hmm. that premiered in 1927. So it was pre-sound. Okay. okay, cool. So this is, so it must have been so fun to be a director around the time of that transition. And when you're only working with imagery, I bet that restriction kind of makes you a stronger director once sound arrives it's like you know how to just visually tell a story when it's your only weapon and then you get this additional tool that is an incredibly impactful i love sound design it's one of my favorite things about movies but if you have to learn how to do it without that you're probably just a better director for it i mean i remember steven spielberg always talking about when people ask him how to become like a director tell stories visually he would recommend that you watch a movie with the sound off and, and again, he was quick to say that those things are incredibly valuable, but just to see the techniques and telling a story visually only and seeing if you can follow the film while it's muted is a kind of a good way to test if it's shot in a good way, you know? A lot of the, the number of films comes from this early era. And I just want to illustrate that by telling you, can you, all right, guess how many films he directed from 1925 to 1930? So five year span. I guess six years technically, but because I'm counting 1930, but yeah. I know the number is going to be high just because of the framing of the question, but like if I was asked in a vacuum, I would say four to six would be like my guess. 15. 15. He had three separate years where he directed four films in a year. That's disgusting. (laughs) That's disgusting. How do you do that? That's crazy. It's it's truly truly mind boggling, um, and and he's doing a lot of writing on these too. So it's not just directing. Like he's he, he you know he didn't write all of his films. I don't think, but uh, he definitely was writing a, a a good bit of them. Dude, he's a fucking juggernaut. He's an absolute directing juggernaut. That's it, crazy. It's truly truly insane. Um, but I think you know the one he started to really get attention. Um, I want to say around 1934, which is when he had The Man Who Knew Too Much, and 1935, The 39 Steps are both films that are, are really well-respected, um, and I, I want to say those are kind of what put him on the artistic map, I guess, in terms of like starting to justify bigger budgets and, and you know more of an auteur kind of uh, approach to things. Um, so from there, you know, he had stuff like uh, Sabotage, The Lady Vanishes, uh, Rebecca, um, uh, Shadow of a Doubt, and you know he—he's just—I mean, these are all in the '40s. Uh, Rope is his first collaboration with Jimmy Stewart, um, mm-hmm. and Rope is famous. Uh, that came out in 1948, but Rope is famous as being the first movie I think that tried to 
make the movie look like it was a series of long takes. So the movie looks like it's only four separate shots. It's actually mm. more than that. He was finding ways to stitch them together. But um, yeah, it's it's one of those types of movies that's wow. just, you know, basically like a play on screen. Mm. Very inventive. Very inventive for the time. That's That's super cool. Yeah. I mean, when we were talking Kurosawa, you mentioned how, you know, I think it's called the Rashomon type of movie where it retells different the same story from different angles mm-hmm. i i kind of wish that rope got the acknowledgement for like oh it's a rope oh, it film. does like it'd be kind of oh it does okay cool i mean it's like, not it's not called a rashomon film or like it's not it right. doesn't it didn't become an adjective yeah i wish it did i wish it did and now i really want to see rope yeah that that intrigues me just that description you gave i want to so he made psycho after right after this film two years after yep now I like I said I haven't seen it. It's one of my shamers. Is that film black and white? It is, but that I mean that's okay. an artistic choice. Yeah. Okay. Cool. I I had always assumed that it was a, a technical restriction. I didn't know that he made the choice to do it black and white. That's cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. I mean, it, it, I think at that point in time, there were also budgetary constraints around doing color. Because it wasn't expensive, like the film stock itself was just fucking expensive. So unless you were a certain level of budget, you weren't going to get that. And I want to say that Psycho was probably on a smaller budget in terms of like his his major outputs. Like North by Northwest is a big budget freaking movie. Mm-hmm. Um, that is is you know obviously justifies paying for color stock, but you know who knows. So Vertigo is number 46 of his feature films. Um, <laughs> and yeah, uh, it's just, I don't know. It's, I, I always like contextualizing where this sits in their career because it, it kind of shows where they came from and, and uh, where they're going after. So it kind of, it, I feel like it kind of flies in the face a little bit of like Tarantino's whole thing about only doing 10 where he, whenever he's asked about it in interviews, he's always like, well, I know a lot about film history and like, that directors generally only like make good movies for so long and all this stuff. And I'm just like, dude, what are you talking about? Like, like some hit, some don't like, I don't know. Like if Hitchcock just stopped at 10, where would we be? Like, I I don't really understand that argument at all, but what are you going to do? When it comes to Tarantino, part of me thinks that maybe that's just like, like a a self-protection kind of instinct. Mm. You know, because I think I think there's probably a lot of anxiety anxiety for him as a writer director that he'll run out of ideas. Mm. And I'm sure, you know, I I don't know. I I don't want to speak for him because, you know, I'm sure he's got a a, a backlog of a ton of ideas. But, um, you know, I I do think it's probably (laughs) it's probably a pretty stressful thing to feel like you have to continually follow up all these great films with another great film. Yeah, He's never made a bad one. Like, like there are ones we like more than others, but he is, he has got an untouchable filmography. Seriously. I think he of course can do whatever he wants, but like, I just, I would feel so weird if I was in his shoes of like, you know, you've been running all over creation telling everyone you're only doing 10. You finish your ninth one. You have to be so selective of what you want to do as your final film. Like I would imagine that pressure would be a lot of just like the idea. I, I can't do an 11th. Like, so if it has to be the right idea because this is the last one. It's just like, I don't know why he would want to burden himself with that, but whatever he wants, he makes dope movies. We love him. Yeah. Um, whatever he's got to do to, to get the, 
the creative juices flowing. I'm, I'm cool yeah. with. Yeah, yeah. But getting back to Hitchcock, I mean, you know, talking about where this sits in terms of uh, his filmography, you know, we you mentioned before that this movie didn't work for you quite as well as as you know your rear, rear windows and mm-hmm. and whatnot of of the world. So, what was it about this movie that didn't really work for you? You mentioned, I don't think it was this word, but for me, it was it was really sluggish in parts, and it really kind of sagged and it bogged down. And that was the thing where I was like, oh, my God, get on with it. And it's a it's a movie that clocks in that I think at like two hours and eight minutes. And on first viewing, it felt like three hours. It really time really goes by slow in the film and it really takes its time. I'm starting to wonder if I'm not as patient a film watcher as I believe I am, because I'm normally like and I like people that take the long way. And I say that shit like that. But now I'm like, I've had it thrown in my face a couple of times. Like, maybe maybe I don't. Um, So to me, it kind of it goes it drives into the mud in some ways where it just kind of really slows down too much. And I'm literally like, oh, my God, get on with it. Like, let's let's go get to it. Um, So that was the probably the biggest flaw. And then the other two is I really didn't buy that they fell in love. That might just be an element of the time and like the way romance stories were covered then. But I don't see what makes Jimmy Stewart's character in this so attractive. Like he's just a guy with a weird voice. And this 26-year-old beautiful person just falls for him and they're like, they're like, you know, and obviously the scene where they're, they've left the Sequoias and they get down to the to the coastline and she kind of runs off. There's a lot of complicated things going on in that scene under the surface because especially on second watch we know that she's involved in this scam um and but he's but she's also starting to get real emotions and she's, she's dealing with all that. But that whole like the the kiss at that coastline and the way the music swells, I'm just like rolling my eyes. I'm like I'm sorry like I'm not buying this. Like this doesn't I don't see real emotional connection. Now when he's drying her off in his apartment or she's recovering, yeah. I could see it a little bit more there, but at that coastline is just like, I'm, I'm just not in, I'm not into this. I think part of that is the age gap for me. Like, cause I agree mm-hmm. it didn't work for me either. Uh, but, but generally speaking, anything to do with them falling for each other doesn't really work for me in this movie. Yeah. I, I, that was, I think actually that might've been a bigger sticking point for me, uh, than the length and the, the times where I felt like it slowed down. It's just like, I'm just not buying it. And a lot of old movies have this sort of problem. Now we watched on this show, we talked about that Humphrey Bogart film. Uh, I'm blanking on the name where he's a screenwriter and he's got that neighbor. In a lonely place. Yes. In a lonely place. Yeah. Now that's an older film that I, I really bought the romance there. Like, so it's not, it, 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 these old time movies can definitely pull it off in great ways. For sure. But, but this was an example of one that I was like, I'm sorry. I'm just like, I'm not buying that there's real emotion between them. Well, and I think it would, it's, it's maybe one of the few failings for me in the Jimmy Stewart performance. And I, and I generally love Jimmy Stewart. He's an actor. I've, you know, really uh, been a huge fan of ever since I saw uh, it's a wonderful life when I was really young. Mm -hmm. My dad was a huge fan of that movie. We watched it over Christmas. So, Um, but yeah, the, I, I've always loved Jimmy Stewart, but I think in this particular instance, uh, an actor that's maybe less of a just 
every every man like all shucks kind of guy mm-hmm. um might have worked better and i might have bought that a little bit more like i i don't yeah. like he he's too vulnerable for me to buy in this like sexy leading man like falling for this other you know uh yeah. beautiful person like i, I don't know D- does that yep. make sense is that it, do you think that's do, a fair critique i think that's a completely fair critique critique that's like I'm, what, I'm, that's, I'm imagining like can you imagine this and, and granted this is not maybe the the exact same era but imagine like uh like paul newman in this role oh yeah that would that would work great and the the problem with it is i don't buy either side of it really that's that's one of the huge things like i don't yes she's gorgeous but i don't really buy why he he would be emotionally attracted to this kind of woman who is he believes might potentially be getting possessed by an old person. And like, she's just a, a damsel in distress. Really? She doesn't have a lot of character to her. So I don't buy why he's falling for her. And even less, I don't understand why she would be intrigued by him. Like he's just a dude. He's like a 50 something dude. I, I just, I don't, I don't, I don't buy it. No, I think the, I think the recasting fantasy land, which is always like, a dangerous, <laughs> dangerous game to play. <laughs> and it's not uh, really a fair way to critique a movie, yeah. but I don't know. It's fun to think about. And I and I've loved Stuart in Rear Window. Like he has this kind of homebody with a shattered leg. Like that movie is is just really dope. He's perfect for that. But I I kind of agree with you. He doesn't have really enough bite to him in this film, and his voice almost fights against him in a way. Like it like it just like it's like seeing Peyton Manning like walking around and <laughs> doing stuff like this. I'm just like, I'm not just, it's just weird. Yeah. No, I mean that, but I will say that's the only part of the performance that doesn't really work for me. I, I generally do like this performance. I think when mm-hmm. like the vulnerability that he has really does work when it comes to moments where he has to be scared and where he mm-hmm. has to be, you know, on edge. Like I, I think, you know, the dream sequence stuff and like the, you know, the, the stuff where he's like kind of, mourning the loss of of who he thought he lost and you know kind of like wandering the streets like all that stuff like works for me i think that that Mm -hmm. that part of the performance is great it's just this this you know romantic uh leading man quality Mm -hmm. that i i feel like i'm missing at times i really love the scenes with with barbara bell i think it's gettys gettys uh who plays midge wood his friend like I love both of them in those types of scenes. Mm-hmm. Like there's the dialogue is really good. It's snappy. They seem like they have a really healthy, good friendship. And that's when I will, I'm like, I love Jimmy Stewart and those sorts of, you know, riffing bits. But, but again, just like we're saying the romance stuff, not so much. Yeah. yeah. just doesn't work. Yeah. Well, do we want to talk about Jimmy Stewart then right now? And then we can get sure. back into to reviewing the movie. Yeah, yeah. Let's let's talk Stuart. Let's talk Stuart. I mean, I mentioned that he's kind of the you know ultimate everyman. Uh, he's he's always in this this very likable uh, kind of central role. At least that's how his career gets defined. He's a frequent collaborator of both Hitchcock and Frank Capra. His breakout was in Capra's "You Can't Take It With You." Um, which was 1936, I want to say. And then his first major hit was Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, which is also a Frank Capra movie. Um, so from there, he, the, the very next year, he won an Oscar for the Philadelphia story. Uh, and he actually, in 1941, enlisted in the Air Force, and he fought throughout World War II. 
Mm. He uh, saw action. He became a colonel in the army, or not wow. in the army, in the air force. Um, and yeah, his no, no, first. That's, you're, sorry, I was just gonna say you're right. That at that point, the army, the air force was under the army. So. Oh, fair <laughs> enough. Yeah. Well, there you go. But yeah, he uh, he was you know in the military technically, I think, until 1968 on reserves and and shit. So wow. he was uh, yeah, a life lifetime military man as well as an actor. He, uh, his first movie back after the war was It's a Wonderful Life, which I think like makes that, like, I didn't realize that until now. And thinking about it, that performance makes a lot of sense given that context, because he's mm. got both the, the horrors of war kind of behind his eyes in some ways in that movie, you know, from just the, the fallout of, of the great depression and, and trying to survive. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think that, that that's a really interesting film for his first one back. Do you find his voice a little distracting? Do you think it undermines him or adds to him a little bit? It's hard not to think about, you know, your SNL parodies of this mm-hmm. kind of thing when, when they, it's such an easily, I feel like it's low hanging fruit for, for people that can do impressions. <laughs> Definitely. And it's an impression that I think everyone can have a little bit of a take on. And, and you know, I, so, so in that way it can be a little distracting, but that's not his fault. No, no, it's not his fault. I'm (laughs) glad I like him too. I don't think it pulls away from the performance. I do think to your point, I think our generation kind of like is kind of so used to it being sort of mocked a little bit or like made fun of or impersonated or whatever that it kind of like makes me view him a little bit differently. But he, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a very unique voice. I don't know where in the country he was from or anything, but like I've never really heard anyone speak like him outside of doing a, an impression of him. You know? He is a Pennsylvanian, my friend. He is from, really? In, he is from Indiana, Pennsylvania, which is, yeah, that's kind of Pennsylvania type area. <laughs> so okay. uh, it's, it's definitely, you know, I think there's a reason that in Saving Private Ryan, Tom Hanks's character is from Pennsylvania. I think that's like in some ways like middle America personified. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't mm-hmm. I don't know. So I think I think, yeah, it makes total sense that he would become this avatar of like American goodness. Yeah. The avatar of the American common man just trying to make it work. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but anyway, I love Jimmy Stewart, and uh, yeah, I, I I generally do enjoy him in this movie, even though I did have some issues in terms. Yeah. I think it's more of a casting issue than it is a yeah. performance issue. Yeah, and for me, I think a lot of times when we hit those patches of things I didn't like, I was it was it was writing. I was just like, I'm just this seems forced. But like thinking about the scene, the first scene we see with him and his friend, and he's got his cane, and he's explaining how he might get vertigo at work if he didn't retire. And he's like, here, say, here's the desk right here, see? And the pencil rolls off the end. And, it, and I just like the way he does it, right there on the floor. And I'm just like, I really do like this guy. Like, I like, he does have a very kind of charming, um, real sort of like draw. So I did, there were a lot that I, there's a lot that I liked about it. But uh, yeah, so yeah, I like Stuart too. Definitely. Well, let's get back to your gripes. You got any other gripes that you wanted to? to no, go that's over? it. That's it for for gripes for me. It was just length, love story were really the, the 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 two that that hit for me. And there's a lot I liked, which I'll be excited to get into the positives. Well, let's did you have? That. Oh yeah, you ready? For, no, because I don't have, I don't have specific gripes. Uh, really, I mean, like the the relationship was really my biggest gripe. 
Mm-hmm. Um, actually, you know what? I've got one more gripe I can say. I, I don't love the way this movie ends so abruptly. It is. It's funny, too, because we we have both mentioned length to various degrees, but I agree with you. Like It's too it's long. Like that's and the, the only time short. where it's too brev. There's the, the brevity is is getting in the way of of the storytelling to me because I'm like, mm-hmm. yeah, like it makes sense that that's a logical endpoint for the, the culmination of this story. But I I need I don't know. I just I feel like there's something missing. It feels like mm-hmm. it cuts off early. And part of that, I think, is honestly the fact that they put all the credits up front. So when you get to the end, it's just, boom, we're out. Like, yeah. <laughs> stream done. Yeah. Dude, the DVD I was watching, like, the movie ends and it just goes, starts running through the names of people who did the restoration. I was like, what? So, I, I actually, I think I totally agree. This movie would have been better served with, like, a nice 90-second credits to let you sit in it for a well, little bit. Well, let me listen to the like, score, too, because then the yeah. score is gone and the score is one of the best parts of the film. The score is dope. I'm sure we'll hit Bernard that. Bernard Herman. Oh. Bernard Herman. Yeah, we gotta we gotta talk about him when we get to it. But yeah, that's uh I I'm I didn't think of that until you mentioned it. I'm with you. This movie could have used 60 seconds minimum of just credits, score, and let us kind of sit because it's a really dark and haunting ending. Like kind of let us sit in it for a minute and kind of drink it in and be like, dear God, don't just like just end it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm no, with I'm- you. So that was my only other major gripe, but uh, let's get into what we loved about this movie. I mean, there, I think there is a lot to love. Definitely. Um, I think this is one of the more gorgeous movies that we've covered in terms of just the vibrancy of like the, mm-hmm. the film. And I, you know, I want to be clear here that this, what we're watching now as Vertigo is a restoration. So some of these colors are not the natural color that they would have been on the original film stock. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I want to just throw that in there as a little bit of an asterisk because it might not be exactly true to uh, Hitchcock's artistic vision, but, um, either way, he clearly is doing a lot with like these greens and these reds and they're just these deep, rich colors that like, mm. uh, it's yeah. I don't know. What'd you think about amazing? All that? There's amazing photograph of choices all over this movie. And like you're saying, the vibrancy of the colors, especially I'm thinking of scenes He's following Madeline for the first time and he's like kind of peeking in where she's at the flower shop and it's just like, oh my God, it's such a colorful room. And then when she's walking around the cemetery, like there's this sort of punched fogginess to everything. Like everything is kind of soft and glowy and you feel like you've been sucked into a dream almost. And so I loved a lot of those photographic choices and... There is one shot specifically that was going to be a contender for me for like favorite just shot. Should I just throw it out there now while we're, while we're chatting about it in terms of the visual beauty of the film? It's that shot when um, they're walking by. It's, it's after she has been rediscovered and he's kind of trying to build her as Madeline was. And that, that is really kind of fascinating and it's from a storytelling perspective. But they're kind of falling back in love again, or he believes it's for the first time. And they're walking by this park in San Francisco that's like this beautiful shot, this incredible architecture with this pond. And there's like birds in the pond that like fly off and like start circling around. It is just one of the most beautiful things I've seen in a while. And I'm just like, holy hell. Well, I'm I'm thinking of like the shot where they pull up under the Golden Gate Bridge and you've got mm. the Golden Gate. It's when she dives off the the side mm-hmm. of the dock. Mm-hmm. Um I 
I just like the the red of the the Golden Gate Bridge and like the the cliffs are all in focus behind and it's clearly mm-hmm. shot on location and it's just mm-hmm. like god damn that looks good. Yeah. Um and I also like even just right out of the gates with this movie the uh when they're running across the rooftops they they clearly shot it on location for part of it to get the establishing shot and that mm-hmm. establishing shot where it just kind of like pans across and i mean like i've been in apartments that like had basically that exact same view so it mm-hmm. was like it was so cool to just see like you know this this you know fixture in time of like you know 1957 uh mm-hmm. san francisco and like Ah, I love that yeah, shot, dude. Just in that early morning haze. Yeah, and it's just it's gonna springboard right into the next thing I want to talk about perfectly. But that opening shot, like you're saying, we're boom. We know we're in San Francisco. As Americans, we just we recognize that city really quick, so we instantly know where we are. And that shot to the Golden Gate Bridge one you were saying, where I also love the approach because it's it's a long it's a pretty long take where we see the cars drive up along this kind of cliff face and the camera is just is following them uh the camera's not moving it's just panning but it just follows them and it settles in and we get that golden gate reveal it's just like god damn that's a good shot uh but you talked about you know space and time and that's one of my favorite things about this movie is it's an amazing time capsule movie we sure it that is one of the things about the movie's patience that i love the most is we really as as americans living in 2022 or anybody doesn't need to be americans we get a great idea of what san francisco was like in the 50s and it's beautifully shot the city is alive it's very different there's all these gorgeous old cars lumbering around and we get those amazingly gorgeous uh like trailing shots when he's like in the car following her and they're just like shot kind of pov from jimmy stewart as they're just he's like driving after her i just love those shots and it's just we get we get to sit and and experience this world in such a really fucking cool way and it for me i think it might be one of my favorite time capsule movies that i've ever seen even though we both have had have our issues with it in terms of capturing a city at a certain point and and when the point actually was it's just amazing at that i think yeah it it's you're you're hitting the nail on the head i i love the way that this movie makes you feel like you're walking the streets of of san francisco in mm-hmm. 1958 and just like being in that world it's so cool mm-hmm. um i and it makes me want to see a screening of this in San Francisco and just like walk out of the theater and be in that oh, environment. How cool would that be? Because it's just like it is that immersive. Mm-hmm. I wanted to ask you, just as we're kind of riffing about the movie, the things we liked and all this stuff. I didn't have a lot of expectations about this movie, but based on the title and like the poster, I thought the fear of heights was going to be a um, a bigger thing. And as we get drawn into this sort of supernatural angle about like how we're introduced to we're led to believe this woman is being possessed by this older woman who passed away like decades and decades before i was i was really intoxicated by that and i was like okay this is cool like this is like and i fell for it i thought i thought the movie was going in this sort of supernatural horror direction yeah and that was to speak again to another positive is it's a very unpredictable movie. 
and it really it does a good job at keeping it kept me off balance the whole time and again i was falling for the con i really thought that this movie was about this person who's getting possessed by like an old ghost it was really fucking cool yeah it's it's a really smart choice to have the reveal at like the two-thirds mark there mm-hmm. like at basically the end of act two um mm-hmm. you know i i i think revealing the the because apparently I, w- I was reading that the book that this is based on um does not do that it it doesn't reveal it until the very end and hitchcock mm-hmm. at one point wanted to actually cut the scene out where she's writing the letter and and confesses what what happened um but i think i think that works in this case because it, it's such a like whoa like turns the movie on its head and it becomes a completely different movie i think that that mm-hmm. really works but i'm with you I, I love that this movie is kind of leading you down the path to be like you know it's leading you down the same psychological break path that jimmy stewart's character is on mm-hmm. definitely and i just i love that it bought it hooked like and seeker and i like that rhetoric that letter writing scene oh me too a lot I, no yeah. it, it's so effective yeah it's just because i'm like because we're first viewing we're like what and then we're like, oh, my God, it is her. And that it just was so cool. And the way Jimmy Stewart tailspins after that and is trying to rebuild this, this construct is, I think, a really heartbreaking and effective meditation about loss and, and wanting somebody else to be something else. Well, obsession, and yeah. Is obsession. The and, yeah. and it's just like... It's really tough. And all those scenes before he meets her again, but all those scenes where he keeps thinking he, he sees her. I mean, I'm fortunate enough in life that I haven't had like a deep loss like that yet. I'm very thankful for that. But like, that's, I always hear that that's what people say. Like you see these people on a daily basis, you think you see them and it's just, and, and that, that was captured really well, that sort of haunting feeling of like, is that her? How could that possibly be her? Yeah. But this story also lives in this fantasy land where it conjures up this way that this person could come back from the dead in a, in a strange way. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And it, it's just really effective at exploring that. And that's when I really was loving the movie was when it went into the sort of obsessive things, his, his downfall and his insistence on making her as she used to be like he, he, if he would just accept her for who she really is, things actually might have developed. And I also like that she did that sort of, she almost bails. Like when she's writing the letter, like we were talking about, I really thought she was going to bail and that was going to be the end of the film. But I think it's cool that she it's like, no, I'm going to try. And we get to see what the try looks like. Yeah. Pretty cool. No, it is cool. Um, I think we should probably uh, talk about Kim Novak here. what do you think of her yeah. performance? Um, that was pretty good. I think the fact that she's kind of doing double duty here is pretty sweet. I think she handles that really well. I think she nails it. Yeah, like I was really happy at the turn the character took when she gets revealed as being involved in this, you know, crazy scheme. Because then I was able to be like, okay, now all the scenes before are making more sense to me. Because you and I have talked in the past about how I don't really like how women are portrayed from this time in films, like just kind of damish and sort of like, it's one of the things I really loved about the Diana Rigg performance in on her majesty's secret Service is She's not like that. She's independent. She's fierce. She's wild. 
So as we're getting introduced, Kim Novak's character early in the film, like, ah, here we go. Another one of those, these 50s dames that's just walking around and taking up screen time and it's beautiful, but it's not bringing much. Mm-hmm. But then when we when we see the character as she really is, which what's that character's name again? Jane, Judy. I want to say. Judy, yes. When we're introduced to her as Judy, she becomes a much more real, fully fledged, you know, fleshed out person and is like believable. I'm like, oh, okay, you're right. So, so she's really handling both sides of the coin really well. And it made me like the earlier stuff in the film more, even though I still have problems with not buying that they fall in love. I do like that she's kind of having these complex emotions as she's setting up this scheme. She's giving a performance. Yeah, yeah. She's giving kind of a hammy, Broadway, stagey sort of over-the-top performance. And it works. It works really well. And I, I loved her as Judy. No, I I, she, That's when I really dug it. I love what you're saying there because I had the same reaction where it was like the beginning of the movie. I was like, she's kind of just a little stiff, like not, not mm-hmm. really into this, just, you know... Um, you you know you can kind of see through the 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 transparency of the performance, but uh, once you get that reveal of her as Judy and you see what she is really capable of in terms of being like she is a a totally different character, mm-hmm. and you're like oh shit! So all of that is contextualized, and suddenly like it's a much it, it's a it's her she is acting within the performance, you know, mm-hmm. and I think that's really cool, and and she totally pulls it off for me. I thought she was great. Yeah, she was so she was awesome. Yeah, really good performance by Kim. Gets an unfortunate I, ending. Very sad. Where she and just very, gets sparked, or, or where she just gets spooked by the uh, the by nun. The, the nun, which was the really shadowy creepy. nun. <laughs> it was really super creepy. creepy. I was like, wait, maybe way. we are in the psychological horror again. Yeah, I, I was like, oh my god, is that uh, Carlotta or like whatever her name was? <laughs> Carlotta, yeah, that's it. Um, and then she just dies. So I was like. I was like, oh, man, that was a bit of an overreaction. What is that, a nun? Ah! (laughs) (laughs) But uh, I don't know. It was probably more the the guilt and the remorse. And and it wasn't just the spook that did it. It was probably a lot of things. But but yeah, it it was a shame to see her go that quickly and abruptly. And then we get uh, two seconds of James Stewart on the ledge, and then the movie's (laughs) over. I think my... Favorite performance in the film, actually second favorite, is Barbara Bell Geddes, who plays Midge. We might be saying that wrong pronunciation-wise, but we're just going to call her Midge from here on out. I thought she was fantastic. Like, really kind of charming and quirky, and a great example of, like, not typical for the time. Like, in, a, in, a, in the time that, like, things I don't respond to. Like, she's, she is kind of this, like, bubbly, kind of effervescent kind of fun, pretty artistic person. And I just really liked her as a character. There was one scene that I found really confusing and didn't really understand her motivations or what she was doing. That that scene where she reveals the painting she's been working on. (laughs) I was just like, what the fuck is that? And then her freak out after. Like, all of that was really confusing. But outside of that scene, she's just a really stable, good friend and fascinating character. I know it was just a cool, it was a really cool friendship that I like hanging out with. And she's super supportive of him after he has his really bad tailspin and is almost kind of like, like just sed, like sedate her. I don't even know what the word is, like catatonic. He's just like in the corner. 
Like she's the one who's visiting him, trying to play music and, and keep his spirits up. Yeah. Like she's just a good person, but I found I mentioned their banter and their dialogue. I really dug that, but I've really loved her performance. I thought she was a scene stealer, totally charming, and I, I thought it was great. Yeah. Um I'm gonna give an opinion that you might uh might have a problem with, but we'll we'll see. But mm. as much as I love her performance in this. I feel like that's a section of the movie that could be lost and not lose all that much. Yeah, I actually don't I don't disagree, but I I I mean it doesn't really add much other than explaining what his character is thinking and maybe how he gets certain leads. But I actually agree that it doesn't add him. I'm glad it's there cuz I dig the performance, but right. it doesn't add a ton. Yeah, I'm just thinking like, you know, we're talking about bloat and that is kind of like probably the that's biggest cool. area of bloat to me in this movie. Yeah, that's some bloat. Of, but, you know, we, we also enjoy it, so maybe mm-hmm. it shouldn't be lost, who knows. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, cool. no, I do I'm, I do generally really love her performance in this. I agree with you. Like she is just this warm, empathetic presence that the movie needs, I think, to to offset mm-hmm. some of this darkness and uh I I am also with you. I don't fucking understand that painting at all. Like, so what weird. is? What was she trying to do with that? Yeah. Well, how did she think he was gonna react? Was she mining for potential romance and was upset that it blew up, or was she upset that she hurt his feelings so bad? Like, I don't know. I gotta believe that there's some amount there. of romantic, like, still, a, a you know, connection there that she is latching onto. Because I mean, you don't react like to beat yourself up that way. Yeah. If you don't feel that way about someone, yeah, I she's guess. fucking pulling her hair out and like all this. Like it's just that scene is. I really wish that scene wasn't in there. That's yeah, the one it. scene I'd get rid of that scene, and now we just have this really cool, like uh, it's just like a sidekick, great character. character. Yeah, exactly. But now we have this. I mean, maybe it's cool that we have this complication, but I found it super confusing and didn't know what the fuck was going on. Yeah, very very confusing scene. <laughs> So I mentioned how she was my second favorite character. Yeah, who's your favorite? So I had to go deep into the cast for this one. <laughs> I've told you in the past, I really wish the Oscars had a category for like very small roles, not quite cameos, but like one scene. Yeah. Have you ever heard of Henry Jones? No idea. Who's Henry Jones? Henry Jones plays the coroner in this film, who I thought was like the judge. He's the person who, after this, the the wife is thrown off and he's like, he's like wrapping up the case and he's talking to like the jury. That guy is unbelievably good. I loved that whole scene, the way he's just like very matter matter of factly rolling through the words. Mm -hmm. His delivery is perfect. He's got really meaty lines of dialogue, really chunky, difficult words. And he is just cranking them out in such a perfect way. And I was just like, I am in love with this performance. It's in the movie for like three minutes and he's out. And I was like, this guy is fucking great. And whenever we're watching movies from around this time, I'm going to be on the lookout for Henry Jones. I hope he did a lot of work because I got like a man crush on him in this one scene alone. It's like, who the fuck is this guy? He is incredible. Yeah, no, I mean, I remember that, uh, you know, that scene sticks out in my memory. I, I wasn't like latching onto the performance necessarily. I just kind of thought it was an interesting expository scene and a way to like cut to the chase on a lot of the details of, of everything that happened. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I'll watch it again for the performance and, and tell yeah, you what yeah. I think. Let me know what you think. Mea Copa just... segment next week. Mea Copa, love it. I want to talk a little bit about 
the, you know, what I mentioned before in terms of what I was picking up on the second viewing of the cyclicality and the, you know, the various motifs that kind of show up throughout the film. This movie is all about spirals and cyclicality. Like Mm -hmm. there are scenes like, you know, uh, Stuart approaching the painting uh, in the art gallery that are mirrored multiple times throughout the film. And everything is coming back around, and it's kind of reflecting this uh, this obsession concept, right? Um, I just I I love that kind of stuff, and I really love it. it. It you know it's kind of symbolizing this movie's doing a lot of stuff with like death and rebirth, and you know the past and the present, mm-hmm. you know, with Carlotta and 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 uh, Kim Novak's character, and um, mm-hmm. you know there's tons of like imagery, like specifically like the staircase uh, where it's forming a spiral, and like there's there's all kinds of you know imagery like that throughout the film. I just the the amount of care that goes into building that kind of concept out, you know, in the background is really it's just so fascinating to me from a filmmaking standpoint because it's stuff that you don't pick up on immediately. It's really like hitting you on a subconscious level. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I completely agree. Well, I I will say this: I missed a lot of the the visual elements that play in that space, but I really loved the themes of death and rebirth, like. They get set up in the scam early on when we start falling for this idea of like this woman is being possessed by an old spirit. But then again, it's it's explored more when Judy comes back and is herself, but it's like this it again, yeah, rebirth cyclicality is all baked in. And next time I see this movie, I'm really gonna keep an eye out for the visual elements that play in that space. The, I think the best way to look at it, if, if anyone wants kind of a, a homework assignment to go figure this out, watch the difference or, or rather the lack of difference between Jimmy Stewart's character following Kim Novak at the beginning when he's just tailing her and mm-hmm. the contrasting that with how he almost Hitchcock almost does shot for shot the same thing, but with him like melancholy walking down the street later in the film after he thinks she's dead. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's when he comes upon uh, Judy, quote unquote, in the window, like Mm -hmm. basically all the same things are done just with a different context behind it. So it's kind of mirroring everything twice. Mm. Yeah. I was thinking a lot about the master while I was watching this film. Did you catch any of that? Is that where is that just my my stuff? Tell me more. Well, the master has portions set in San Francisco. I found the scores to be very similar. I mean, we gave a brief shout out. I definitely want to dive into the score more in this film. It is awesome. The score in Vertigo is fantastic, and it it reminded me a lot of what Johnny Greenwood is doing in the master. I I, I wonder if there was some some specific. Let's try to do something in this vein sort of thing. I wouldn't doubt and it. And with the exploration of Scientology and the search for meaning in life when it's really hard, you know, rebirth and death and 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 multiple lives is something that is is built into the framework of that story in mm-hmm. the master. So I was getting a lot of parallels again from the cyclicality you're talking about, the score, and San Francisco as a setting that really I was getting a lot of callbacks and there's that great shot in the master of the ship that, that 
Philip Seymour Hoffman is on that big cruise ship going under the Golden Gate Bridge, like at sunset. It's just like, mm. holy hell. Yeah. So there's a lot of that sort of stuff. And I was like, I wonder if this were shout outs to Vertigo. I mean, I wouldn't doubt it at all. I, yeah. I know that PTA has got to be a big fan of Hitchcock in general. So, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, that's really cool. And I mean, going back to what you said about the score, I think that's really interesting. And again, that's another one of these, uh, you know, cyclicality or, or, you know, the, the looping, you know, quality of how Bernard Herman structures it. Mm-hmm. There's a great YouTube video that breaks this down where it's showing that there's basically two lines of music happening, uh, one that's going up while the other is going down and vice versa. So they kind of, you know, it, it's always like, you know, mm-hmm. like and, and just repeating on itself and, and echoing. And it's it's just, you know, it's all playing around with the, the same themes, which is really mm. neat. That is that is really really cool great great score just just really really special bernard herman is a genius anyone who hasn't heard the north by northwest score that is like if you need to go get just like pumped up if you're just like you know going into an interview or something listen to that that score it's so electric man <laughs> will it get you more jacked up than the taking of pelham one two three score i don't know that's that's definitely maybe bum, 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 bum. <laughs> that's gotta be number one you know, I wanted to to bring that that stuff up because I think that's the kind of thing that you you just don't think about the first time you watch something. So it's really fun to pick up on those uh, on repeat repeat viewings. One of the things I I brought up was the shot of the uh, stairwell and how it forms a spiral. Mm-hmm. In that shot and a few other shots throughout the movie, anytime they're trying to hammer home the way that Jimmy Stewart is perceiving, you know, his fear of heights. They do what's called the dolly zoom. And Hitchcock pioneered this with this film. But uh, since then, it's been used by tons and tons of filmmakers. Uh, it, it's the effect of pushing in the camera or pulling it out on a dolly, which means that it's locked off on a cart. For those who don't know what a dolly is, it's on you know tracks that it moves forward and backward or, or side to side. It's So it's doing a forward or backward motion and then the opposite motion with a zoom in or a zoom out. So what it's doing is it's keeping the, whatever you want in focus, like in the center of the the frame is staying the same size, but the background behind them is, is changing, shifting perspective. So the perfect example of someone who has taken this and run with it is Spielberg in Jaws, where you have the shot of uh, Chief Brody on the on the beach when he first sees the kid get attacked by the mm-hmm. by the shark, mm-hmm. and he it's a way of emphasizing the shock on his face. But he leans in and and Spielberg pushes the the camera in closer to Roy Scheider and zooms out at the same time to create mm-hmm. this warping effect behind him. So oh, that dude, that's that such was a good example. Yes, so that's like the 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 probably my favorite usage of it. But in this movie, they use it you know as this way of just making this disorienting feeling of like, oh shit, like I'm, I'm like losing control of, you know, this fear. Yeah. I mean, it's, it can be so effectively used in such a wide variety of, of styles and attempts. I think of it's used pretty subtly in Goodfellas. It's, It's part of Ray Liotta's descent. And he's starting to think that Jimmy Conway is going to try to kill him. And they're having this like meeting at the diner, that seems like it's going to make or break whether or not Ray Liotta is going to get executed. And it's just used in a really kind of 
subtle way. You kind of have to look for it. It's not as as on the nose as the Jaws one, but mm -hmm. it's definitely there. And it's used then to kind of show a, a creeping sense of paranoia and a creeping sense of like things falling in on themselves. But yeah, it works so good in the Jaws one, like you're saying, of just showing shock, disbelief. And it's something that I think is really easy to be overdone. And you and I have grown up seeing it used in so many different ways. I think a director has to be incredibly specific about when they choose to do it. And it better have a good fucking reason for being there because it's easy to abuse and it be cheesy. But it's really, really cool that this is what brought that into existence is vertigo. And it's a really uh, fascinating camera technique that can really do a lot of work emotionally on an audience when it's used well. Yeah. Well, going back to what you said about rope earlier in terms of like, it didn't get the Rashomon type designation of, you know, becoming an adjective. This movie does become an adjective in that that effect is also referred to as the vertigo effect. Oh, cool. Good. Well-deserved. Yeah. Well-deserved. So we obviously were, were tooting our horns about how beautiful this movie is. It's also cool that they were inventing really impactful and really important camera techniques and moves. So not only is it gorgeous, but it's inventive as well. Absolutely. Well, any last notes that you want to get into before we wrap up here? Yeah, I had a couple of things I wanted to hit before we close out on Vertigo. I really like the terrifying dream sequences. Yes. In this movie. Well, there's I really they, just the one major one, right? I, I remember there being... Well, I guess there really is just the one major one, but there are times where the light starts flickering and, you know, sort they of do like, weird warping things like yeah. that to kind of play with your, your feeling of dreamlike, you know, being in mm -hmm. a dreamlike state. And the one of Stuart after his downfall that leads to him kind of needing to go into, I guess you'd call it rehab or whatever you'd want to call it for a while. That one is really frightening. And really effective. So effective. The colors. And, oh, the colors and the animation that's used is really cool. But but the shot that really punched me in the face is when he is reimagining the memory of talking to his old buddy by that window after after you know the character has fallen to her death or whatever. And Carlite Carlotta from the painting is there and it's like flickering. It's just so eerie and so creepy. Well, you know, I, I think also what would fall into that category is when they do the the shot that kind of circles around them while they're kissing after he gets her to make yeah. the transformation. Because it it literally is is uh, putting you in his headspace by by showing you like where he's imagining himself being as opposed to like where he actually is. Mm -hmm. It's really yeah. cool. Oh, that is so, that's a great point. That was a dope, dope shot. And yeah, just really does that dream sequence really got under my skin in a good way. Yeah. I was like, that's it's just unsettling. Great. great filmmaking, super unsettling, really frightening. And at this point, I'm still believing the scam. I'm still thinking there's right. a supernatural element. And I'm like, oh shit, is he haunting him now? Because he's starting to have the same dreams that she was having, where he's standing over an open grave and seeing falling in and, all of that stuff. So that all really did a number on me in a good way. And I was like, that's just really, really cool filmmaking and taking some really big risks for the time. Like there's a lot going on in those. And you know, you someone could be a douche and argue that they don't hold up. It's like, get the fuck out of here. That's really risky techniques to be trying to do in the fifties. And emotionally it works great. Yeah. No, I love it. I think it, yeah. it works so well. 
Yeah. And I really kind of goes along with that a little bit. But when he is following her early in the film and she's at the museum for the first time taking in the painting, I love that thing where he starts to notice the similarities. Like it shows the flowers and then we see the flowers, the hair, we see the hair, the necklace and all this stuff. And that was just really building up the creepiness in a really good way. I you want to talk like, about oh. other spirals uh, in terms of the imagery, her hair. Oh, her hair. Her yeah, made. yeah. Ah, that is a good one. And even the flowers look a little kind of spirally when bundled up together. Mm-hmm. Um, but that that sort of stuff, when the movie got into creepy mode and unsettling mode, um, I found it to be really effective and really cool. But I think that was that was the last of my little kind of wrap-up notes. All right. Did you have any others you wanted to hit, or are we kind of good to take this think, one out? I think we're good. Let's uh, Let's get another movie on the board here. Whose week is it? I don't even know. I believe it's mine. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So... I've got two options and I want to give you the genre and see what you're kind of more in the mood for. So what I mean by that is not genre in the typical sci-fi yada yada, but in a dartboard movie genre, I've got a shamer and a cult classic in mind. And I'm wondering without knowing more information than that, what do you think you're in the mood for shamer or a cult classic and whether or not you've seen it might alter which one I want to put on the board. Well, that's the thing is like, I, I, I think I'm wanting to get more things on that, uh, that neither of us have seen. Okay. So I'm going to, I'm going to start by pitching you the cult classic then. Okay. And, and see if you've seen it years and years ago, Victoria Roman sister to Veronica Roman, who did the artwork for our show. Shout out. Pitched, pitched me this movie. And I, I, I heard her and I was like, that sounds interesting. She raved about it. And I put it in my back pocket, kind of forgot about it. Recently, I was rewatching the DGA conversation that had Tarantino, Bong Joon-ho, and Taika Waititi, among others, talking about their films that had come out that year. That was the year of Jojo Rabbit, Parasite, things like that. And Taika Waititi mentioned this movie as an inspiration. And I was like, fuck, I, t- I forgot. Victoria told me about that. The movie is called The Heathers. Have you ever seen this film? You just, it, it, I think it's just Heathers. Oh, yeah, maybe it is just Heathers. Have you seen it? I have not. Okay, okay, so this is one neither of us have seen. All I know is it's kind of like an eerie 80s sci-fi sort of classic, and it just sounds like it made a pretty big impact. Got two sources of recommendation. I think it kind of might be a fun one. Might be kind of cool to check out a cult, like another cult movie. I loved Repo Man. I think it's around the same time that it came out. What do you see on your end about it? No, no. I mean, I think it. I think it's a really interesting choice, and I'm definitely, I'm definitely down for it. I want to be clear mm-hmm. on that. But mm-hmm. part of me wants to hear what the other one is, just because okay. I'm, just because I'm curious. Yeah. No. Okay. So I'll tell you what the other one is. This is a big shamer of mine. I have never seen the Karate Kid. I've never seen The Karate Kid. Oh, my God. This is tough. Um, I'll tell we're you We're leaving all this in, by the way. I need, yeah, I need yeah, the deliberation here now. Victoria. Because I like both of those options, but I I, I don't know. I mean, like, yeah. Karate Kid's one I've even Kar- tossed around. around. It, that's crazy. But I then on the, you know, then you that. also got to think, like, on the other hand, we've, we've got Operation Condor. We've got kind of a martial arts-based yeah. thing. But... We also don't so have I, really a kid movie on here right now, which that's kind of a kid movie. So there's there's me, things. 
To me, it's a 50-50, but I think I know what makes me want to choose one over the other. Okay. Victoria was at this wedding I was just at last weekend, and I talked to her about the Heathers and how I want to put it on the board, too. And I don't even think she listens to the show, but like I feel like ah, I told her I was going to get it on there. I kind of owe it to her. So for me, I think that's tipping me more towards the Heathers. I'm down, man. And and let's just Karate be clear, going it is back not in the, the Heathers. It is oh, Heathers. All right. For me, if, I mean, if we're talking yeah, about yeah. the same movie, it's Winona yeah, Ryder and Christian Slater, yep. 88. Yeah. 88. Okay. Yep. That's the one. Heathers. Okay. I'm leaning towards Heathers. Talk to Victoria about it at the wedding. Like, let's do it. Let's, let's, let's find out what this movie's about. I don't know much. We've got the Taika Waititi shout out. I think it could be a fun one. And Karate okay. Kid. I bet we'll get on the board pretty recent, like pretty pretty soon, because that you know, I think will be a fun one too. But you're right, we got Kung Fu Hustle, which is kind of kicking around a similar space. We got Operation Condor, Karate Kid will be getting up there. I think okay. Heather's is okay. is kind of a more interesting choice for this. I like week, it. So I like the choice. Yeah. I like the cool. reasoning. I like the choice. It's going on at number eleven. Awesome. Let's do a little recap of how the board looks going into this dart throw. At number one, we've got You Can Count On Me. Number two, Ex Machina. Number three, The Right Stuff. Number four, The Big Sleep. Number five, Operation Condor. Number six, The Sixth Sense. Number seven, Amadeus. Number eight, The Fifth Element. Number nine, Days of Heaven. Number 10, Big Daddy. Number 11, Heathers. Number 12, The Straight Story. Number 13, Thunderbolt and Lightfoot. Number 14, Last Night in Soho. Number 15, The Friends of Eddie Coyle. Number 16, Modern Romance. Number 17, The Blair Witch Project. Number 18, Waking Life. Number 19, Face Off. Number 20, Kung Fu Hustle. Woo, baby. So in terms of like ones from the original board we have left, the only ones left are Ex Machina at number two, The Big Sleep, number four, Sixth Sense, number six, and Days of... Oh, or sorry. Days of Heaven, number nine, and uh, The Straight Story at number 12. So we've got five left. That's crazy. So the OGs are really dwindling. We don't have a ton of OGs left. And I will, I cannot wait to see what the last one is. I, I, that'll be fun. It'll happen soon at some point. Those five I'm, have made it through 28 dart throws. That's amazing. Maybe one will get hit right now. Should I, should I chuck it? Let's do it. Drew, we have a number. Let's do it. What number is that? The number is 14. 14 is a newcomer to the board. 14 is Last Night in Soho. Oh, cool. All right. All right. All right. We're staying in the kind of thriller realm. Could be a good, got to trust the dart, but I think it might be a good kind of transitional point. I like it. I like it. It's the most recent movie I think we've covered on the show at this point, other than Top Gun Maverick, obviously. Yeah, what year did it come out? Do you have it right in front? Twenty twenty one. It's very, very recent. Yeah, other than just like you said, other than Top Gun, yeah. Yeah, and I know that this movie has been divisive, so I think it's gonna it's gonna make for an interesting conversation here. It should be easy to track down. It's a really recent film from a a really great filmmaker of our generation. I'm sure we'll talk about it next week, but something neither of us have seen super recent should be a fun chat yeah so you can check that out on hbo max or pay to rent uh, anywhere but yeah i'm uh, excited to check this out next week and dig into it that'll do it for us tonight on vertigo though 
Thank you so much for listening, everybody. Please remember to rate, review, and give us a follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. If you want to keep in touch or give us a recommendation, drop us a line at dartboardmovienight at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram at dartboardmovienight. Artwork for the show was created by Veronica Roman, and all of our music is by Eric Williams. Play us out there, Eric. Sorry, Mike. Later. Later.